Y'all gonna like this smooth. Twist, everybody. Now I take it up a little bit. Reva, turn that down. I don't want to say that's, uh, you know, autobiographical, but maybe. You know what I mean? Now, also, Reva will play the whole song at the end of the podcast. There's a surprise guest on this, and it is... A guest yep, vocal. Yep, my son, my son another morale shows up, and he heard me working on that song, and he's like, let me ha- let me have a shot at it, and it is amazing is what i'll say so yeah i can't wait to hear it and i want to get back to that topic of drug deals in the third grade oh, yeah but uh i'm not ready yet because well, first of all there's a couple other things we had to tell you about i'm going to tell you about the bad christian conference i'm going to give just a little bit more info on that uh also it's important that we talk about our sponsors just a little bit up front mm-hmm. like who we got and stuff like oh, that yeah. so today's show is sponsored by stamps.com you get a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale by going to stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the home page and enter our code bad christian and then also we're sponsored today by Quip. Quip makes my favorite electric toothbrush with a built-in vibrating timer. You can get your first refill pack for free when you go to getquip.com slash badchristian. Mm-hmm. Speaking of bad Christian, BC Con is uh it's upon us. We have it is locked it in. Coming. It is officially confirmed. Yeah. And so all I have for you now is the calendar bit. Okay. I'm not gonna give any details yet, and I'm not gonna we just don't have them. Yeah. <clears throat> we got a lot of plans, but I don't want to give any confirmed things yet. But the Bad Christian Conference is in Kansas City, and it is the weekend of June 6th. And I think that's a Friday, the 6th. Is that correct? Yes. The 6th is a Saturday. Yep. So Oh, the 6th is a Saturday. So, yep. 5th, 6th, and 7th. So the, the conference will be on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It'll close late Sunday night. And it will start Friday in the afternoon or evening. So you can make your, at least begin to look at your travel arrangements. And I think we do know the neighborhood that it's going to be in. Is there any part of town we could tell people? All they could do now is look at sharing Airbnbs in the neighborhood, booking flights. We don't have any tickets or anything like that just yet. But a lot of people have been bugging me for that. So I thought we should go ahead and get get after it. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So what's the name of the venue? How about that? And then they can look it up and see the, the uh, cool. neighborhood and stuff. It's called the Meyer Space. The Meyer Space. And if you have an address, I'll say, we don't need the address or part of town, whatever. Look up the Meyer Space in Kansas City. Crossroads area, that's what they call yeah, it. Yeah, and that's near Kansas City, Missouri. It's nowhere near uh, the other Kansas City. That Trump said, or <laughs> right. whatever. It's not. I mean, I know there's two of them, but it's this is the one that's in in uh, Crossroads, the great state of Kansas. Is going to be sad that we're having it in Missouri, or vice versa, whatever. That's right. <laughs> but uh, that's that's what we're going to do. Area, I expect though. everybody a lot to of come stuff around there. It's, so. it's going to be fun. Yeah, 
looks like good area, so we can start sorting on the, the okay. The big point is the people getting groups together and social groups together and the Airbnbs and the social pipeline, you know, flows out of the BC club. So yep. it's go, we're going to make it so easy. If you're not in the BC club and you don't think you know anybody, or if you're in the BC club but don't know anybody, we're going to really work hard to make it very easy to get to know people and hang out and do a bunch of stuff other than sit in a room. So it's going to be terrific in that regard. However, if you're in the BC club, which you should be, you're going to get a discount. You're going to have access to tickets first uh, and – You'll be plugged in there because they're already organizing the Airbnbs and who's staying with who and what day they're getting there and sharing flight info and all that kind of stuff. So come on over and join the BC Club at thebcclub.com. Get more episodes each week. And uh, I guess we're off and rolling, but the song about kids dealing drugs. I believe... That the before you, hey, before you that. keep going, can I say one more thing about the BC Con? You're talking yeah. about people staying places. I just looked it up. I'm going to be staying about nine miles away from where, and it, it, it goes into the drug dealing, uh, mm-hmm. what you're about to say. I'm going to be staying about nine miles away at the casino. Okay. <laughs> Do not tell my wife. Luckily, my wife hasn't listened to this podcast in quite a while, so she will not know, but I am going to be gambling during the BC Con. It's certain, not, you know, I'm going to go to all the events. I'll be heading up some stuff, all that stuff. But there's going to be some very fun gambling there. And uh, I cannot wait to go back to that casino. It's very fun. That sounds good. We can stay there. Some people can think, look at rooms there, and some people might want to stay more local. Nope. But we know where Toby will be. It just popped in my head because of gam- gambling and drugs. So gambling yeah. and drugs. Go back to your drugs, where you were taking. I wrote a song about um, drug I, dealing. I, I think that that's that probably I did that too. I probably dealt drugs in when I was little, but that was the drug of course would be sugar, but I I, oh, mean, I would yeah. take probably a kilogram of warheads and nerds and things and resell them <laughs> at school. It was covert and it was a drug deal and sugar is a drug. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Yes it so, is. So I mean that that's a, I think a lot of people have that story. I think it's I bet you it's a very common what people would say is a, like a entrepreneur uh, predictor, like bedwetters or pyromaniacs, you know. The kids that are selling either drugs or candy and doing that kind of stuff at school, you right. know, those are those are those 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 type of people, the hustlers. They get out there and go. Oh yeah, that this the school often misidentifies mm-hmm. as problems. Um, but that's kind of what I was curious about uh, talking about. Is I think that uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, here's what happened to me today that is different. And I want I want to just say it publicly, okay? Uh, because as I change and as I grow, I can admit I'm being wrong, okay? Uh, about things. <clears throat> I took a shower this morning. Oh my first lord! Thing. Oh I my got up. God. I took a shower. I got dressed and ready, and I did it in a way that I don't normally do. I I just did it like. I, I don't know how to say it, but I did it like a normal person, <laughs> and I did it with an open mind. And, hey, I, and you have to say a normal person. We talk about showering, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, I haven't taken a shower for a really long time, so it started to really freak me out a little bit because I don't. I really have no idea when the last time I took a shower was. I couldn't tell you the answer to that. And but I know I haven't been taking one because I keep saying I need a haircut. And you know how when you get a haircut, you have all those itchy hairs on the back of your neck, right. and you've got to take a shower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So every day I don't get a haircut, I think, well, I shouldn't take a shower because I didn't get the haircut yet. <laughs> so I've been... Yeah. <laughs> Makes total sense. Yeah, that's why you shouldn't shower. 
Well, yeah. So, <laughs> so I haven't been taking the shower because I've been waiting to get the haircut. Yeah. But I, uh-huh. who am I kidding? I'm not about to get a haircut. Right. So now I'm just not taking a shower. So I said, you know what? I'm going to get up. To, I'm going to take oh, a shower tomorrow. I'm going to get up and do it. And I'm in a big life change phase now where I really am looking at everything different. I'm looking at everything with this mindset of don't try to remember what it's like and operate in your normal patterns of behavior. Yeah. Notice them and try changing them and see what happens. Like what can you learn in that? And if you do something painful, what can you learn from it? And right. to me, to get up and take the time to shower and do stuff, for whatever reason, that's right. painful to me and I avoid it. Today I got up and did it, and I noticed something that I didn't know. I, I don't feel that I have a dirt problem or a stink problem. That's not really the point. But I didn't – I usually, when I'm not participating in things other people do, it's because I don't am not realizing something else that they must be getting out of it other than what is the plain obvious thing. Um, and in this case, I had probably 30 or 40 minutes where I was just getting ready for my day and taking a shower and washing my hair. And, and the thing I wasn't doing, what I normally do, is how fast can I get this shower done when I take one? I just went, I just slowed down just a little bit. And I was able to, like, my whole mind is different today because I was able to reflect in the morning and, and think, like, it's an inactive thing. I'm taking a shower. I'm scrubbing my hands. I'm brushing my teeth. None of that requires any mental effort. I'm not on my phone. I'm not engaged with another person. And it's early in the morning still. And the calmness that can come over your mind during that shower is very valuable. Wow. Turns out. So, I mean, I'm wondering, is that play into why people often have these routines in the morning that seem like a big waste of time to me? Like that they're the benefit, like you can get all that done while you're doing the important thing, which is clearing your mind and think, you know, whatever that is. No, it pretty... this is uh, people want to be clean. They, they, oh. <laughs> what, I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, the, <laughs> you don't have to make it so deep in order for you to take a shower, it has to be the deepest moment of, of everybody what else's life, or what? I mean, like, hey, wait a minute. This is the moment where Zen and I I'm, I'm am just here asking. and I, I am didn't present. Notice that. It's just a shower. It's but I'm clean in the That's you maybe do something you're getting out of it regularly by doing it in a routine that way. But the only way you can convince yourself to shower is if it is a moment with you and your mind and transcendentalism. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Possibly. Transcending I mean, I don't the know. moment. I didn't know. At the, I'm just saying it's something I noticed. I thought that was pleasant to notice that and say, maybe I could do that Did more. Did you have like a spiritual moment like, or is just you no. realized that you were just by yourself and you, I mean, is that part of it that you have three kids and you have a moment to be by yourself in the bathroom? That's what I'm saying. So, yeah. That's what I'm asking. I'm just saying other people don't know why they do things. I promise you they do not know why they do things. I know why I do things. That's a huge difference. And so I know other people do things for very good reasons, but if I right. don't know those reasons, I'm not going to be able to do those things because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I'm often finding, oh, that's why people do those things. They just didn't know that's why or tell me. So I'm asking you guys, you're probably getting more out of that shower thing than just the clean hair. Uh, yeah, There's I mean, a lot no, of maybe. the behavioral ritual thing of like having a morning routine and a nighttime routine, you know, mm-hmm. right before bed. Both of those are pretty yeah. important for like setting your mind for the day, mm, yeah, or the night. So that adds to the value. I can turns out I can get clean while I'm doing that other thing. Yeah, you get Maybe. you get yeah. you get extra. <laughs> uh, yeah, you get a little extra. Yeah, I, but, yeah. 
that's what you're looking for, I think, out of life usually. You know what I mean? You're looking for a little bit of extra. Like, I mean, did you hear about the price of postage going up, Toby? Actually, I did, and I had to immediately run into the bathroom and take a shower because I couldn't. T- I can't stand it. <laughs> well, they did go up on the price of postage, so that's just another area where if you could get things done at the same time right. without having to do separate things for separate reasons, like go to the post office. Yep then I think it's very wise to do. And, of course, you can do that with Stamps.com. Stamps.com eases the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates. Stamps.com brings you all the services of the U.S. Postal Services right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. You can simply use your computer to print Official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere. Anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail's ready, you just hand it to your mail carrier and drop it or drop it in your mailbox. It's really it's really that simple. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. And it's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, our listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. You just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Bad Christian. That's Stamps.com and enter Bad Christian. So, yes, I know that some of my language, I'm happy to get made fun of for any of those things. Don't mind a bit. But I am... I am I am aware that some of my language and things that I'm doing differently in my life come across goofy or clunky, but I can't stop being amazed by that word reflection and what it means because it's something I've been very unable to do most of my life. And I realize there's just, I just don't know how to, I don't want to talk about any weird way, but to be able to, to reflect on things is just seeming more and more important. And I don't know what to make of that, but I feel a lot of ways that I look at things changing rapidly, and so it's kind of it's kind of weird. It's a weird time in that way. I still, I mean, you think it's just that uh, you're older, life's gotten hard. Like, like for example, I mean, you've taken so many showers in your life, even though it's probably mm-hmm. way less than most people. You know what I mean? And like, I think that's the thing. Since you have the benefit of. For example, if we just stay with just taking a shower, mm-hmm. I've taken way more showers than you. And for me, when I take a shower, I just think, oh, well, it feels nice, hot water. You know, maybe uh, there's been times where I'm hungover and a shower helps me or I have a headache. Uh, you know, shower's comforting. I feel cleaner and fresh, all these things. I mean, it just so I take it for granted. It's not necessarily that I don't know why I'm doing something. It's just I have built a habit and more than you. So you get that mm-hmm. benefit. And so now you're when you say reflection, you're reflecting on something because you haven't done it that much. So now you get you get to reflect on it. So in some ways yes, I'm jealous. A lot I'm to, a little jealous right. because you have avoided things, but I don't understand what I mean, it took all there was no way you were going to do it when you're twenty. So is it is it just come down to well, you're in your forties now, so I think when you so. take a shower that you just think about it differently. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it has a lot to do with age, but it's uh, it's it's almost this technique. Well, I mean, everything about. I mean, the point is the reflection's always tied to discomfort, and that's the thing that's changed for me is I've I've spent my whole life trying to avoid discomfort. Yeah, 
because it seems like that's the obvious thing to do and just staying with what I know. But now that I am 40 and I know I'm okay, I'm actually okay. Like it's not an emergency if I slow right. down. It's it's kind of okay to like look at something and not just yeah. get through it. Oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. Like that's it's I guess I never even knew I felt that way, but I must have always felt like I was doing everything I can every second in this very tense way. And if you and that is really good. I yeah. don't have a problem with that. It's, and I've enjoyed it. It didn't feel bad or anxious. But if right. I can slow down and think and or, or question things that I didn't know I could question, like, well, why? what if I did do it a, 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 the other way? What if I right. did do the opposite, but not just get through it, but experience it? Then there's a lot to experience, it turns out. And then there's a lot to, it's painful and uncomfortable and awesome. And I don't know what else to say because that's what it feels like doing the BC69 challenge and the intermittent fasting is is similar in that way. Like the yeah. fasting I'm doing right now, I'm only doing it because it sounds hard and I know I'll get uncomfortable and then I wonder I wonder what I'll think about then. Like I'm doing 18 hours, that's the th- third day in a row. I didn't think it was that hard, but going the 18 hours was actually really hard and I got hungry early yesterday and I said, "Okay." And so then I knew I had like six hours where I was going to feel hungry. And I thought, I wonder what interesting new thoughts I'll have in those six hours. Because I never, you don't normally right. get to have them. Yeah, you're right. And well, so I'm just saying, well, that's it's the, all about, that, I mean, doing a shower is painful to me. But I, but I don't I think, like it. I think that's the other thing there. And this is what I'll say too. Part of that, that growth thing is that people, like your parents, always say, you got to take your shower. And there isn't a, you know, you, and they just say the simplest thing: we got to be clean, and that's right. it. And no, I've and always that, rejected. And it. nobody wants to talk about a shower. You know what I mean? It's, it it's seems like, dull. It, it, yeah, it's dull. It is dull. It, it just the showers are bad, whatever it might be. But once you get older, you can go wait. What now? For example, because you have unbelievable amounts of data to back up showering less might be beneficial to you. You're, you're one of the mm-hmm. people that I know that doesn't get sick that much and, and, and you know, as, as much as other people. And well, people say, well, you'll be dirty, you'll be smelly, you'll be... De-. I mean, you have a lot of experience and data on that. So now you get to, once again, you get to experience, well, what if I do shower more? Now, you might actually, 10 years from now, have real data on the amount a person should shower. <laughs> I just think it's so... I still don't like the shower and the chemicals and stuff. Like, I don't like the way... It's, right. I don't feel human afterwards. I feel like some gross piece of plastic walking around. I don't like it. It feels inhuman to me to be that chemicaled with... I don't or clean. It's just unnatural. I just don't like the state of the of the shower of the, the the that thing that they call cleanliness. I don't believe in that. Yeah, I don't like it. And there's no way you need to shower as much as people say. I agree. But that doesn't mean there's excuse for me. But yeah, if now, now I may just stand in the hot water in the morning. Or I've something. been wondering a lot lately, and I, uh, I this really sucks for me. I've been wondering a lot lately about our hygiene and how much because. I mean, it's a business, so all hygiene products are trying to sell you something, right? So you need it. You need to smell like whatever fruit or whatever. You, you need yeah, you to. You got to smell like fruit. Your clothes have to. Use this dish, you know, this this for your dishes, this for your clothes, this for, you know, you need a million, th- all this stuff. And I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if we'll find out that a lot of that stuff has caused a lot of harm. For of example, uh, and I'll say this because it's, it has changed my life. The best thing in my life, that it, well, one of the best things in my life is uh, I always think that brushing your teeth is kind of boring. So I try to walk around when I brush my teeth, right? Mm-hmm. And I went, uh, I had a toothache uh, a while back, I don't, it, last year sometime. 
And it was just, it kind of bothered me, but it wasn't a big deal. But I was like, well, we have insurance and the, you know, it starts over. And so I'll just go ahead and go to the dentist. Went to the dentist, he said such and such, went through this whole procedure. And now my tooth uh, is sometimes feels a little bit worse. And I was like, man, oh, but, no. but everything was fine. I don't, it, like now it's a little, my back tooth is a little sensitive to hot or cold, which it was not before yeah. I went to the dentist, right? Yeah, my dentist screwed my teeth up. Right. He gave me a bunch of cavities and sensitivity. Right. So I've, I'm frustrated because you're supposed to go to the dentist. When you have toothache, you go to the dentist, but I, I'm in worse shape. In fact, I was in way better shape when I was just, uh, it, my tooth kind of bothered me. I was like, oh, maybe I should. And I only went to get it checked because I was like, well, the insurance. You're paying for the insurance to go get it <laughs> yeah. checked. Like, I almost I feel know. like if I'd have waited a little bit longer, it probably just would have stopped. Like, I think maybe I had a popcorn kernel or something stuck in a gut or like something silly, right? Or I don't know what it was, but it's frustrating because, uh, one of our sponsors is Quip, and my teeth have just been so great since using it. Like, I felt so good, and I feel like I let uh, – I talk myself into going to the dentist in it. And You feel like a good person when you take a shower or you go to the dentist because you right. have that and that privilege. And, and I take my kids to the dentist. he's going to yep. care. And it's the same with your car, right? You should take the mechanic all the time and ask him, does it need anything? Right. Uh, you, should uh, just, uh, wait, what, or, you should just take it by every month, take your car by the mechanic shops, and just say, hey – Need anything? Uh, what do you think they're going to say? <laughs> yeah, so I'm saying. They, right. uh, what do you think? I mean, what do you think? You, right. You, you know, I mean, you'd be getting time and belts every six months if you did that. That's a, I'm, I'm frustrated about it a little bit because I'm wondering when in, in the future, when we look back on some of these hygiene things, like the, the perfumes and the stuff that you put on your clothes and stuff like that, maybe that might have caused some problems. Like some, maybe some of the things and symptoms that people have. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm 100% speculating here, but. I do wonder if don't you think there's a, a decent chance that one day you're going to find out? Wait a minute, the oils that my body naturally produces actually really does help. What my are you talking skin about? You're not one stuff. day. Everybody knows that to be true today. <laughs> well, I was just trying. Everybody to say, knows it's true. I was trying to they say pretend like it's not. Evidence. What is it good for the environment for everybody to use eight gallons of water every day? Right. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> What I was are, trying I to mean, give it makes no of the sense. doubt for a damn shower, but no, but I don't care. No, everybody knows showers are overdone and it's right. bad and it's a problem. Everybody knows that if they use their mind to think about it, but right. they won't do that. And every you would not. And some of you people love showers that get really offended because if you say what you did, uh, maybe you take two showers some days because you're that right. Whatever, that's fine. You're that pure, I guess. But there are so many people that don't take showers like me and they'll never say anything that's what you don't understand i represent a lot of people <laughs> that would never say this cowards i mean because stinky you, ass you just cowards get, i mean and i'm not saying everybody's extreme as me and i play it up and i exaggerate it, and i go long times just to prove points yeah right. fine but there are tons of people that shower once a week and they'll never tell you right. and they know it's the right thing to do and they'll never tell you because of the way you act about it. Right. You're right. So, you're right. okay. All right. But, <laughs> anyway, that's but, not the But point. speaking of hygiene and stuff, I will say, like I said before, I get so bored with brushing my teeth. I don't know. I just, like, what am I doing? I'm just looking in the mirror. I'm just moving my hand up and down. That's why I have loved for years my Quip toothbrush because it vibrates, which, first of all, nice that, I think that's great. They, I don't have to think about ordering or getting a new toothbrush, which I always think is silly because <laughs> I don't know which one to get when I go to the store and where do I get it and what's the right one. 
Quip does it all for me. I walk around while I brush my teeth, and it gives me a little buzz to know, hey, you've been brushing on this side for 30 seconds. Brush to the other side. It's simple. I don't have to think about it. I don't think about brushing my teeth. It's just that user-friendly, and I love it. It really is by far my favorite toothbrush ever. And so I wish I would have trusted Quip more uh, than the dentist. But I, they probably would not endorse that. They, for sure, I'm sure Quip is very pro-dentist. And I am mostly too, but this one experience kind of got me a little bit. But uh, there's a built-in two-minute timer. It pulses every 30 seconds. That's what I was going to tell you guys, which I think is cool. And it reminds you when to switch sides and helps you clean your whole mouth evenly, which is really good. The brush heads are automatically delivered uh, on a dentist-recommended schedule. Dentists do recommend Quip. Uh, every three months for just $5 and a friendly reminder uh, when it's time to refresh and to stay committed to oral health. That means brushing for two minutes twice a day and flossing regularly no matter what brand you use. Quip makes it simple and starting with an electric toothbrush, flex, refillable floss, and an anti-cavity toothpaste, which I really like their toothpaste too, is all just part of the deal. They are a great company. I love this toothbrush. And if you go to getquip.com slash badchristian right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash badchristian. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash badchristian. Quip, the good habits company. All right. Today we have Jennifer Canoost, and I couldn't be more excited. Uh, to have her on, she's a professor at Duke University uh, for religious studies, I believe. We'll, we'll get her. We'll get into that there. But um, I mean, she has her PhD from Columbia. I mean, this lady is just brilliant, and she has several books. And I'm I'm really excited to have her on. She's an ordained Baptist pastor uh, and a biblical scholar, and we're going to get to talk to her a lot because uh, I'm not that smart about the Bible. I call myself a Christian, and don't know that much. So Jennifer Canoost is coming on the show. Let's bring her on. So I. <laughs> I want to tell you how how I found out about you. I typed in, uh, I think I was I was on Google, and I just said, "Does the Bible uh, really say not to have premarital sex?" Or uh, and, and what does the Bible say about women? You know, I typed in. That's what research uh-huh. is for most people. Like you're an actual researcher, yeah. but most people are sitting in their sweats <laughs> on the couch doing research. And your name came up, and then it just flooded with all these different academic papers, and I listened to a bunch of the podcasts that you've been on, and I just thought, I mean, I just loved a lot of what you were saying, so that's how I stumbled upon you. And you are a professor, you're an ordained uh, Baptist pastor, um, and you, the, you went, do you work at Duke, or you went to Duke, or, or you're at Boston College, yeah, I, or, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, Boston I University. teach it, I, I te- yeah, thank you, Boston yeah. College and Boston they, University, they don't like particular that. about that, they, they don't difference. mess that yeah. up. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I am a professor of religious studies at Duke University as of um, January of 2019, so I'm just, just for a year and a little bit. Oh, okay, nice. Well, I'm in Charlotte, by the way, so we, we're big, we're Oh, all... cool, you're very close, I've been to Charlotte oh, now, yeah. so. Well, very cool, very cool. <laughs> but, um, so... Like I said, that that is what I stumbled upon because I've been thinking about it more and more. Matt and I both have uh, daughters, and I've been thinking more and more about how do I want to hmm. explain the Bible to them so that it was nowhere near explain uh, that it could come across the way it was explained to me, especially about sexuality yeah. and about women and what that mm-hmm. means and what their bodies mean and and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So that that really kind of led me down. Uh, the I guess the world of, of Jennifer Canoose because you <laughs> have done so much research on this and I just thought it, it was phenomenal because you grew up just like a church kid like me right yeah true that's true and I'd be curious to know what you end up telling your daughters I mean I struggled with that with my sons really? so. yeah well yeah I have a son too the same the same 
Uh, we, you know, I, I grew up in South Carolina, very, very strong purity culture, extreme, like charismaniac, small church, 40 people, everything was, you know, a sin. And so, of course, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. even though everybody was doing the stuff, you just didn't talk about it. But, you know, as long yeah. as you didn't, you know, yeah. you didn't talk about it. But how did you go? Yeah. That, that's one of the first things I wanted to get into just to, because you grew up with that faith and it sounds like you had a great relationship with your mom and that your mom was even uh, kind of almost an academic about the Bible as well as you. But then you kind of probably went off. Was she like, oh, no, you went too far? <laughs> Well, she's been, she's gone along with me, but I've put her through her paces, you know, things have been hard for her at times. And, um, I moved a lot as a kid, so I, and I actually never lived in the South till now. So I'm very excited to be a Southerner now. Um, so I don't know exactly what purity culture was like in your setting, but we definitely had our own version. (laughs) Um, um, that was a struggle for me, definitely growing up and something that's still, I think through and still an issue for sure. Yeah, one yeah. Of, one of the things you wrote, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on which article it was, but you wrote, and it really resonated with me, was that you were you read your you had gone back and found some of your old diaries and read how you were so uh-huh. worried about not being perfect enough for God, and that's exactly yes. how I felt. I felt like from from uh. very early on, I was a sinner first. That was the first thing Absolutely. I was more than loved or anything, and then uh, from and and uh, to eventually what helped me change or open my mind was honestly some exhaustion. I was like, I, I, there's no way I can live like this for my whole life. So either I'll just be the center yeah. or there has to be some kind of ground I can take with, with my God. Yes, I, I'm t- I agree. And I think it really took me to adulthood to, to fully realize how much I had internalized this God who hates me. And I really had. Yeah. I mean, um, and I could never live up to that God because that God already decided that I was horrible. It wouldn't matter what I didn't do because everything was measured by what I didn't do, not what I did do. Um, I could never not do enough to please this God, um, the God that I had invented in my own mind, my own soul, I guess. Do you guys mind if I pause you there as somebody that does not, did not have that experience? And when every time I hear people say it now and they say it more plainly, I'm just taken back more and more every time I hear it because I didn't have it. And it sounds worse and worse every time people say it more clearly like that. So can, how did that happen to you? (laughs) I mean, what, like, did somebody want that to happen or where was the accident? Where was the error that allowed Mm. for so many people to have the experience you did? That's almost all I care about is what error is that? Because I don't think anybody wanted you to. Do you think it was your parents' strategy to say, well, if we have her worried if she's perfect enough, that'll probably <laughs> take care of some of the problems. So I'll take that trait. Don't, I don't feel like that's what your parents were doing. How did it happen? What caused that, you, you guys, to think that? That God mm-hmm. hated you if you weren't perfect? I wish I knew. I mean, I, it was a combination of so many different things. It was, you know, coming to church and um, the models that were put up were people who were perfect. It was um, not, to my mind, not good advice as a teenager about about sex was part of it for sure. I mean, I, I love my mom dearly and I, I love her still in so many ways. But when I asked her about that kind of thing, she said, oh, I was a virgin when I married your father. And then that was the end of the conversation. Um and then, you know, things that happened where I, I didn't feel like I could say how it was for me because the only possible response could be you're disgusting and bad. So I just kept it to myself and felt disgusting and bad. But that to. wasn't their intent. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem like you think that was their intent was to have you be that scared. 
And surely their intent wasn't she can't bring to us her concerns about her. I mean, that's the probably the error part. You, or you don't think they meant to do that. No, they're very loving and kind. Right. I think they were scared, actually. I think they were scared of what would happen if they didn't scare me, um, whether they were conscious that that's what their strategy was or not. And I, I get that. I mean, in, in the response to unprotected texts, which is another book I wrote a while ago, has often been, you know, if we don't tell our children not to have premarital sex and scare them that it's a sin, then, you know, all hell's going to break loose and gosh knows what they're going to do next. Yeah. Is it on purpose and, to scare them or you think maybe – because I, it's not that crazy to me to think I wish my kids were a little bit more scared in the, and I tell them, <laughs> you could fall off that and bash your face open and your brains will spill yeah. out. I mean, I want them – I'm trying to make them a little more scared. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah. But yeah. is that – I'm just a little bit of a loss as as where that breakdown is between and you don't even want your kids to come to you with their doubts or concerns when that you know that's the part where I guess it gets crazy is right. yeah I'm trying to make you aware of consequences and you shouldn't have sex with everybody on earth for right. if it feels good that's what is but where does the part come in where you can't verbalize what your concern is is that where the problem is as a kid? Um, I'm trying to think how to answer this question. And I think I'm just going to say this thing. I think I'm old enough to say this now. I think so, too. I don't know your age, but surely you I'm, are. No. <laughs> so when I was 12, I was molested. And I told my parents. And their response was, oh, R.R. such a nice man. He wouldn't do that. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. So what I learned from that was that they couldn't handle it. Right. So that's what I mean about scared. Yeah. They were scared for me. I understand. And the, their fear led them to that. And that, I think, I know, I've told them now, because I was really angry about it when I was finally adult. I was like, that was ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I told right. them. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know they're sorry. But that still left me in the wilderness, really, as a child, yeah. you know, as a growing into my sexuality and what that would be and what that would mean, because I was somehow supposed to please everyone mm -hmm. and apparently protecting my own physical integrity wasn't part of the way in which I was supposed to protct others. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. I am so sorry that it happened, and I, I do it's think okay. it's very... I don't, I don't say that I'm a victim now. That's why I thought about it for a minute. I'm like, is this a useful thing to tell or not? Um, it, I think that it is very useful in that it... I mean, first of all, it just gives so much context for the rest of your work as a person, not just an <laughs> yeah. expert or a, a, an yeah. academic or something. And it, I think it's all too common, and the, the impulse to not say it is one that, uh, again, this is almost always... Uh, uh, an issue so thank you yeah. for sharing and i would toby did you I, well i was gonna say even too i appreciate that because uh i was not molested at all but that helps me relate to the the idea of like what it feels like you had you never of, of course the the molestation <laughs> is horrific but then to not be able to be seen as a person or believed like that that thing and and what i think now is when matt when you asked the question when i was thinking about my parents it's not that they, I, th I think I agree with you. We might be saying the same thing, Jennifer. It's not that they wanted bad for me. It was that I think they live, they were living with their mistakes and their mistakes were like right, mm -hmm. right in their throat and they were trying to swallow them down. And so when I touched on those mistakes, it hurt. 
and and they yes. they wanted to run from that. No no way. Yes. I mean, I, I it sounds like your parents are good people. And no way They're could great. they go there and go. Wait a minute. Under our parenting, something horrible yeah, happened to our daughter. It. I mean that that blame that they must live with. And I, and I don't know how much y'all have been able to talk about it or grow. It seems like you you have a healthy relationship with your parents and even a healthy uh, way of processing this still. But that I I don't know. Like when I that's what I'm saying. Like when I see my kids, my parental mistakes. Oh gosh, that hurts so bad. So when I scream at them, yeah, look yeah. both ways when you cross that road because a car's going to hit you yeah. and it's going to be the worst yeah. thing ever. It's because I'm I'm yelling at me because it, am I not paying enough attention? Am I a bad dad? You know all these things, and they don't see that. Yes. They just go, "There's my dad yelling at me" or whatever. But that that's really yes. tough. And this is where the you know the intersection of the Bible comes in because there's yes. all there's it's you're living real life, but then there's always this. Oh, there'll be redemption. It'll be, and then right. you, so you can just move on past the thing that you're in right now. You don't have to be present. There'll be redemption one day. So let's move on past it. Yeah, that's yeah. such a scary yeah. combination. If you go with the parents who are kind of paralyzed to do to and for whatever reason. So I, you know whether, the, I mean, it, it's it's really tough to to talk to talk about this. It's an issue that I think about a lot, and it's always super sensitive. And that's why you're speaking slowly. I'm speaking slowly now because what you guys experience. What is abuse, and it happened under your parents' watch, in a, in a way. And of course, what Toby's saying is there they can't think of themselves as I allowed child abuse or I did ab- abuse on children or or neglect or even interference with them. You know, all those things do exist. I think in every parent, they exist in me. I do things that will be abuse, improper use of my children. I'm guilty of that. I don't want to think I'm a child abuser. How I mean, I, and I got to get so far away from that that I can't even entertain. You know, I, I really think that's um, interesting that y'all put it that way, and thank you for both sharing about that. And then, on t- so the parents are kind of paralyzed, and then on top of that, there's a there's a layer of the Bible, and there's a magical thing where you can be saved from the scary thing and the bad thing, but you got to get past the big guy and the Bible yeah. and the rules. <laughs> yeah. And that's even more intimidating than the parents because it's even more distant, and your parents are submitting or at least ostensibly or visibly or pretending to submit to it and defer to this other thing, which is even more scary. And and you think God is scary and hates you then? And now we need the Bible to be a bunch of lists of rules just to appease him. Is that what you guys are saying is the way you felt about? And a lot of that was sexual. You know, it's funny because I think I said, I, you know, I shared this in other ways that, that my mother never really had a real rule book approach to the Bible. And I, mm-hmm. uh, most of my biblical scholarship as a child came from my mother. I mean, I went to Sunday school and I learned a lot from my Sunday school teachers and I learned a lot from my pastors, but I think I always trusted my mother's judgment. And she never really thought of the Bible as a rule book. She always encouraged me to question it. So maybe that's why I don't actually think of the Bible as an instrument of um, violence against me or against, or that it has to be that. And so mm-hmm. I get I get angry when it gets used that way. Mm-hmm. Partly, I think, because that's a great thing that my mom gave me. Um, in addition to, you know, I mean, I life see. is complicated and people are damaged. Okay, yeah, that's great. That. Yeah. But, but um, my mother never said to me, the Bible says this, do that. Mm-hmm. You know, she never did. And which I'm is really why you're lucky. able to do the work that you do today, which is great. 
I and, think you're right. And yeah. Toby, I mean, you had more of the it's a rule book situation on top of the, of the other. So my, diff- mine was situation. not academic whatsoever or thought. <laughs> it really was. Oh wait, we got the we got the list. We're done with the Bible almost. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but it, it, and and my family probably would be offended if and when they like hear the cliff's me say notes this, of but, it would just be a list but, of but do's and don'ts. The, the Bible yeah. was it really is, and it sounds like what, what you're saying when you get frustrated when the Bible's weaponized. That was my whole my, mm-hmm. it was my whole youth. It was weaponized. It was either it's going to save you from hell because that's where you were going, right. or it was used against right. those other people that aren't sitting in the pews with you. The forty, you know, we only had forty people at our church, but everybody outside those walls yeah, were yeah, the bad yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Christianity was weaponized in terms of my own experience of it, but I didn't, um, I'd never experienced it with the Bible. So maybe that is one of the reasons why I get, I turned out to be a Bible scholar in the end, you know, and a a historian of early Christianity, like, well, that's a weird job. But I guess because I was working all of this out, I mean, I think scholars do that, whether we admit it or not, in our writing, we're working out whatever it is, the trauma, the, the joy too, you know, that we see in the world. So, so you've written so much about sexuality and how it's perceived. And, uh, I mean, I, I want to get to where where do we even have these claims about the Bible, you know, the sexuality and through the lens of the Bible or whatever. But you said you didn't feel, you didn't feel oppressed by the Bible or that it was against you, but what was it? The actual, were you a part of the church system and the church system made you feel like it was oppressive towards sexuality? Is that kind of what led you to this? Film? Yeah, I mean, I just, I guess I just always felt like I was dirty and bad, even when I was, you know, singing in the choir and going to youth group every Sunday. Somehow I could never get over that. And I don't, didn't get that message from the Bible. So I must have gotten it from the, the Kool-Aid of going to church on Sunday, I guess. Yeah. I'm, um, and in the context of my family, I mean, I moved a lot as a kid, so I didn't have a, one church that I grew up in. I had several. Um, and some of them are good. This is the other thing I want to say is that I, especially as an adult, I have been part of such amazing churches over my life with, with these pastors and communities that are making a huge difference in people's lives in a positive way. So I don't want to only be negative, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, when I worked at, um, um, uh, St. Mary's Episcopal Church in West Harlem, that was an incredible experience. The priest there, Father Castle was amazing. Um, when I was in college, I had a great um, Disciples of Christ chaplain who really saved me from my despair about some things I was, politics I was involved in. So like at each moment where maybe I could really decide God hated me, there would be someone who would come along and be like, no, actually, we can do this other thing. And I would say my mother was one of those people. That's why yeah. it's all complicated. Right. That's what makes you a very interesting recipe here is that uh, <laughs> I think it's very technical thing there that you had the Bible taught to you by your mom in a way that was very positive, which continues to sustain your care and love and positive ability to utilize it today. And in the same time, you're saying that the worship of the Bible and the twisting of it by the co-opted church culture, I didn't say co-opted, you said, uh, what did you say? You said a a good word for church, weaponized uh, version of church. Toby's word. (laughs) was Was that guilt overlay but it wasn't on the, but most people that have that also their fundamental Bible teaching is tied up with that. So you have the Bible as this, uh, you know, document that is a life giving document to you. Yes. And then you have the Christian culture, which is oppressive to you at the same time. That's kind of an amazing recipe. I guess for a Protestant it is, yeah. <laughs> particularly a Baptist, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Catholics have their own thing, right? And they don't have to have this Bible thing. So it's, you know, it can happen anywhere. Yeah. Yay. <laughs>
So help us understand the Bible better then. You know, okay. I, we, I mean, people, we're pretty used to the idea that it's a bad rule book in some ways. But as soon as you tread into that territory, it starts to make people uncomfortable. Right. You know? So how do you... Uh, is it? How do you... Well, let's just keep it simple. That. Is it... It, it, is that the book we should turn to that informs us about our sexuality right now? <laughs> and I, don't, I, I guess that's not be, simple. Think, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I think it can be if, it's, if we're not looking to it to be a rule book. If we're looking to it instead as an invitation to a conversation about all the complicated ways that human beings have tried to think about sexuality over a great period of time um, and to be in conversation with those people people who are we claim as Christians as part of our heritage, then it can be a great opportunity. Not that we're going to accept it on face value, but that we're going to ask, well, why would someone make that argument? Who wants that? Whenever I, I teach um, this kind of stuff in church context, I usually start the, the lesson by saying, what do you wish the Bible said about sex? I like that question. Yeah. What kind of responses do you get? Oh, all kinds of great stuff. Like, I wish the Bible said that... Um, I don't know that that um, that I I'm loved no matter no matter who I am and whatever my desires are. Or I wish the Bible would help me understand how to how to live with my desire in a way that's life giving. You know things like that. Um, people say such wise things. It's a great thing about being a professor, right? Just to ask questions and hear what other people's wisdom is around these questions. Do you think that question prompts people to generate in their mind a selfish answer, but realize oh how like, like it almost prompts them to realize the selfishness. Like, what do you wish the Bible said? Oh, I know. Uh, more stuff about women being my property. Wait a minute. <laughs> right. Wait a minute. Well, no one's Something's ever wrong. said that Trick to me. question. because I'm teaching it, so I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Well, I'm Maybe just saying that prompt, though. Yeah. Like, if it, could, if it really could say anything you wanted, then you're now yeah. faced with the moral dilemma of, well, what would I— what would, what would that be? I mean, am I right. selfish or is there something there? You know, but I think that's that's interesting in, to put that question in that way. What uh, what does that what does that question lead to? As far as uh, it seems that it leads to telling you something about how you see the Bible. It's, it's, it's a very open exactly. question that way. Exactly, and I actually think that when we sit down to read the Bible. That, that's why we're reading it. We want it to do something. We yeah, want it to say something right. to us. And so if we start by admitting that, then we can see how our own readings are actually informed by what we that. want it to say. <laughs> and I, and I, I, that's, that is what we do. We produce from that book what we want it to say. What about the opposite approach here of uh, non-Christian or less interested and just saying, well, I mean, maybe it just has nothing to say about sexuality at all. I mean, it recorded some historical stuff, but, you know. Or do you think it definitely has important things to say, but it's not a rule book? What would you say to somebody goes, I, I don't think it says anything of use about sex. Why would it? How does it? In what way? From the skeptic point of view. Well, it definitely says useful things about sex to those who hold it as a scripture, right? Um, in the sense that it becomes a way of formulating what the community is going to say and, and what the community is going to um, believe and practice. So therefore, to take it seriously is really important. Mm -hmm. But to take it seriously in a way that's not a rule book, I think. To take it seriously as an invitation to figuring out who we are as a community, who we want to be and why we want to be that. Um, is it important to think about sexuality if, if one isn't a Christian or if you know, one is a Jew and reading the Tanakh or, you know, no. Why? It's, no, of course not. It's not important to what 
U.S. law is around sexuality and people who use it to try to make arguments about U.S. law, I think, are making a fundamental category error you think and you should knock it off. <laughs> completely, uh, those are completely unrelated spheres and, and, and you should not intend to make any law based on what your scripture says? I think you can make an argument about what you think law should be, but I don't think you can expect like the Supreme Court to hold up a, a, what you believe to be a Christian moral I view. I think that would be a, um, you know, exa- I'm a Baptist, right? So that would be an affront to soul liberty. You can't mm-hmm. do that. Yes, um, but quoting scripture is not a reason that somebody else should listen to you about your opinion about a law. No. Right. I don't think okay. so. No. 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 For, well, Excellent. even in... And once again, I hope uh, if if you don't want to talk about this, we can uh, cut this or whatever. But uh, one of your articles for HuffPo, or maybe the one article was about, is entitled "Planned Parenthood Save Me," uh, and and I was this was it was it really hit me like a ton of bricks. It's one of the first articles I read by you, and it I thought it was really well written, obviously. But uh, the way you portrayed. Uh, Matt, what is this, the concept we've been talking about? Like, I forget how you word it, but it's the anti-villain. I'm interested in a concept called the anti-villain. It may already exist, but but yes. Mm. Um, and and what I mean by that is we all like Tony Soprano, who is an anti, or Walter White, who is an anti-hero. So they're yes. bad people that we like and identify with, and like that part <laughs> of ourselves. And, so I'm more yeah, interested yeah. in the anti-villain. Which would be somebody who everybody thinks is stupid and an idiot and doing the wrong thing, but it's actually mm-hmm. the right thing and nobody even knows and people don't identify with it or like it. I think that's more beautiful and Christ-like yeah. person. But I mean, you and, can take and, that and far. Maybe it's an archetype like, to put but to push. It could even be considered somebody like this. You might think this is funny, but somebody like a Howard Stern who will go to the mm-hmm. the the silly, grotesque, sexualized humor where nobody else would go and it allows people to to go farther than they would in a way. You know what I mean? Like it opens up that door. I even think you could say Jesus is that person. People want him to be the king. They want him to do all this stuff and he's like, nah, just love love your neighbor. What what are you you thinking about this, this, this... After like all this stuff, you can't even like look at your neighbor and love them. And and, you know, you don't identify with Jesus naturally and you don't like what he did. Really, right. like it doesn't feel good to you to make the decisions he made, but they were right, and you don't identify it in- with it. Instead of Tony Soprano's, like, yeah, I'm that bad guy too. I love it. I know it's bad. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Like, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, it, it's complicated. <laughs> but in in your article there, it was it was interesting because uh, obviously, uh, you know, pro life, pro choice is just a huge topic, and it just gets thrown around and thrown around, and without it steals the humanity from it. Um, and, and yeah. I myself am pro-life, but, uh, I hate being a part of the pro-life movement because it may, I, that I'm not on board with all of it. Right. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not there with the way it is, but the way you, you wrote that article was really interesting to me because, um, it, it opened the door like you, like the doctor who would be there mm-hmm. for you and the church wouldn't be. Like and I know and I'm I'm you know for sake of time I'm not telling the whole story. Y'all can go to HuffPost, look up Jennifer Canoose, and you'll you'll see that her articles are great. But uh, I thought it was really interesting. It's like that that doctor that would stand there for women and take the you know the abuse of the you know protesters or the the things that have been said about them and all of that stuff and 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 actually be there not only as a doctor but maybe even like emotionally maybe even spiritually Absolutely. in a way and i yeah. thought that was that, yeah. that was such a, a revelation for me reading that article because i was like wait a minute uh, wow what a way to bring some humanity to this 
This is some, I mean, this, obviously, not only are the women going there for, you know, uh, something that obviously probably most likely would be life-changing, but there are, you know, physicians, doctors, nurses, everybody that is there trying to do something that they, they think might be loving or helpful or be there for somebody when no one else is, especially like the church, the, you know, the, the yeah. good guys, the good guys <laughs> you, you can't turn to right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I wrote that because, I mean, that was a while ago now, right? But that was like the latest assault on Planned Parenthood. And I'm like, wait a minute, no. Um, I mean, I, it, it's not a secret. Every If you wanted to figure it out, you could. I got pregnant when I wasn't married with my first son. And um, I didn't want to tell my parents because I knew that was not going to be well received. And I had to decide what to do. So I went to Planned Parenthood and um, the doctor treated me with so much respect and care and um, let it be my decision and helped me, really. I mean, I was, you know, 21. I didn't know what it would mean and how to handle right. it. Um, and, and she really gave me the courage to keep walking and to decide for myself. And, you know, my son's 30 now. Yeah. <laughs> wow, what a good story that is. I mean, that really is a, a, a anti villain kind of thing there because he helped she, you she yeah there she, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry she, she yeah i apologize okay. she she, oh, she, she totally helped you there helped me and she did. didn't yeah. get much out of it like you know what i mean like in 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 that way and uh it's not like what people would think and it's it's it seems you know counterintuitive and sacrificial in a way it, it is way and so that's if you can't get there with your mind you know it, you have to understand that the Christian people are who wouldn't and or you didn't think or they didn't do a good enough job in whatever it is that they would say you couldn't go to them or you didn't think you could or they didn't make you think that you could or whatever it is but this person was there for you absolutely and for her it was just in a day's work it was mm-hmm. probably she probably spent a half an hour with me she I'm sure I don't remember her name I'm sure she doesn't remember my no. name because I'm sure I was the 10th young woman she saw that day um and, and she doesn't walk around claiming to be a hero for that baby she saved or you or how many abortions she got to perform. She doesn't walk around like a, acting like a hero for anything. No, I don't think. No. I mean, I don't know her. I, well, I mean, I'm assuming. I I don't, I, again, yeah, I don't even right. know. But, but, but it was her small act of kindness and humanity that made all of the difference to my life. So I try to think of her like what kind of small act of kindness and humanity can I do here? that isn't about judging or throwing down a law book or deciding someone's fate for them, but rather invites them to become the best person that they can be in light of their own circumstances. I think it opened up for me too. uh, And I cannot, I'm probably not going to say this wrong, but it almost seems like, for example, family members I have, friends growing up, you know, still to this day uh, would say, those the people that were praying against that clinic and that they were out there protesting all this stuff, God showed up and you and changed that doctor's heart for Jennifer. And it, that makes me think that it's completely diminished everything and stolen the spiritualness, the actual love, the actual compassion, the actual thing that we're here for, which is relationship, even relationship with our God. Mm-hmm. It steals that away once again and moves it into this ethereal, heavenly thing that God just takes away all free will and that doctor didn't have a choice or didn't, you know, didn't, there was nothing there about the humanity of it. And as, as opposed yeah. to, wait a minute, this, this doctor did, 
spoke to you and treated you like uh, respected you, in a, respected yeah. you as a person with a brain Respect, and can make decisions, right. and then maybe left and did 10 abortions. It, 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 maybe. It, uh, maybe none, but I'm just saying that, 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 that whatever that might be. So the truth is, it, she's, she was doing something like above just being a doctor or doing a job or anything. She, like the, the anti-villain thing there is, she is like, I'm going to treat these patients with respect and allow them to make decisions for themselves. And that's, that, I think that's like, even when you're going back, when you ask your students what they would want the Bible to say, that's what I want from, that's, that's what, what I've always wanted from be. my God. He made me and then he, would, he would respect me something. as a human. Yeah. Like if I could have respect yeah. from yeah. God, like, Hey, you know, you're not as smart as me, all this stuff, but I'm going to, I gave you that brain and this is where you are in life. Let me just respect you enough to, to handle this. And I, I think that's when the, the especially the right uh, and then the Christian right steals that away from us and and once again makes it not about the present. It's either it's either always like hell or eternity in heaven, and you steal the present, which is I think is the biggest thing that Jesus came to say. Wait a minute, right now, look yeah. at this moment right now. What, why are we you know trying to this other stuff? You say this and you say this, and I'm saying you know, but if you could just be here right now and and realize that you might could you know actually have some real growth and real change. That you and that doctor were present with each other for thirty minutes, and it might it might be one of the you know pivot points of your life. Uh, you know, uh, the very least one of the most sure. you know one of the most memories and affected that you have been in a in your life. So I just thought that was really beautiful the way you put that. It opened up a lot for me to think about those people that are standing there taking that day after day and it no one thinks that, you know, th- there is no chance that they would be considered the hero by I'm, I'm sure, you know, the women that they work with and and maybe even men think <laughs> that, but the on the Christian side, the people who are called to be <laughs> loving and say they are would never think of those people as being there for you. Well, that's just sad. I mean, I, I, I just hate that. I hate, I hate when Christianity gets used as an excuse to hate someone. Yeah, me too. If, 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 that's, if that's what Christianity is about, I don't want anything to do with it. It's terrible. No, I, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, they would do the thing where they say, oh, God even works through a horrible person like that. But God intervened and made that bad abortion doctor do a good thing for once. But, and no credit to her. It would have to be through that narrative is the only way they could accept it even. like you, That's crazy. I think that's right, though. Uh, so in your work, what, what do you think of as the actual work that you're doing with people between spiritual and academic, and how do they relate and interrelate? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. <laughs> and one that I try not to ask too much because then I have to, I don't know, I don't like to have pride. So I don't know, what am I trying to do? Is there something above both of those that ties them together? Are they separate things you're interested in that have some overlap? I think that for me, um, encouraging curiosity and compassion in myself as much as I can and in others is the only way I know to try to make a difference in this broken world. So whether... I'm teaching a class, you know, interreligious studies, and we're talking about, you know, Black Elk Speaks, which is what I did yesterday, or whether I'm um, in my end of the world class and we're talking about apocalyptic arguments in the Gospel of Mark, or whether I'm speaking to a group of students about sex in the Bible. What I'm always trying to do is find a way that we can be more interested in being curious and compassionate than in being superior and certain Mm -hmm. yes 
Yeah, curiosity is better than certainty. <laughs> no doubt about that. If you can get, get, if you can see it that way, you, I think you, most people will be much better off. But all right, Matt, curiosity brings some fear, I think, to people. Matt, you're, you've been keeping us uh, emotional. We have a, a Bible scholar, an ordained pastor, <laughs> an ordained Baptist okay. pastor, and professor. So I want to ask just a few questions. Like, like for, for example, from your book, Unprotected Text, which I love that title, by yeah. the way. I thought that was that. I, I just like that. Um, so. One of the questions I have is, especially with the Bible and sexuality, right from the beginning, yeah. uh, and I just yeah. want to ask like, from the perspective of some of my family members, I was thinking about when we, we had a chance to, like, what would my dad or, you know, my pawpaw, who was a pastor, ask you, and, you know, mm-hmm. they might want to try and catch you or whatever. Doesn't, yeah, okay, yeah. so right from the beginning <laughs> in Genesis, doesn't God say, uh, man and woman? And and that's 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 where it's at. And so, I, I don't, right from that very beginning, I don't I don't need to go any further. That's what I've heard from the pulpit. So, what, what can you give us a little bit? Is, is the Bible that uh, clear on man, woman, right? Even uh, sexuality, gender, maybe even right from the very beginning. No, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I love being a scholar because maybe you wouldn't know this otherwise, right? right? But, um, but the actual Hebrew is Isha and Isha, um, male and female. God made an Adama, an earth creature, and then this is Genesis one, and then from the Adama, God made Isha and Isha. So it's not, it's not a man, it's not a male body and a female body or a man's body and a woman's body that are created to be totally different. Um, it's only, and then in Genesis 2 and 3, when you get the Adam and Eve story, where you get the rib story, where there seems to be two separate bodies that are linked to male and female. And this sort of break between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2-3 has been a source of endless fascination on the part of those who've received this text, whether it's um, the rabbis or the early Christians or the medieval Christians or now us, right? And the interpretations that have been um, brought to bear on these texts um, have not always been, you know, man, woman, or, or that comment that you'll all hear sometimes in certain kind of Christian contexts, you know, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, this kind of thing. This is just, this is a sort of historically particular contextual interpretation of Genesis 1 to 3 that one could find multiple other kinds of interpretations. So to your papa, I would say, (laughs) I respectfully disagree because many other people have read that story in multiple other ways. You're choosing it to read that way to read it that way. So then my question back to Papa would be, why is that such an important way to read this story for you? What right. is it that you want huh. this story yeah, to question. accomplish? Mm-hmm. Is it a burden of proof thing? I think that's what's cool about scholarship is it interrupts this flow of just endless uh, interpretation stacked on top of one another. With a, with, And this is the worst thing, one of the bad things that Christians do is act like it's an insecurity thing, but they'll act like scholars are the ones that say they know everything. They'll accuse you <laughs> of thinking right. you're so smart and you know everything. But all you say is, oh, really? Well, I don't make that assumption. Why do you? Because right. here's the words, and it doesn't say that. So where do you get your assumption? Because I don't know is what you're saying. And, and then they say, oh, let's look at the know-it-all over here. Yep. Think she knows everything. <laughs> but all you're saying is, I don't know, but you seem to. If you can take that posture with scholarship, it's a big interrupter right. of, you know, interpretation stacking, or I don't know if there's a better term for it than that. 
<laughs> I break like that, that interpretation stacking. Yeah, no, that's that's what scholars try to do: break the loop. But we confuse our own limited understanding with the truth, capital T. Yeah. That's that's our job. When you when you were uh, differentiating between the two creation stories, you said mm-hmm. uh, the second one re- refers to two bodies. The, the first one, are you saying the first one is, is what? What did you mean by that? Okay, so the Genesis one says God created um, Adama. This, you know, in I don't whatever English translation you use, it'll say something like God created the human person, God created man, whatever. And Ish and Isha, God created them. So Ish is um, male, Isha is female. Okay. So the way that some um, some rabbis read that story was that actually the Adama body was male and female both. Right. So there's so it was a um, you know androgynous or dual sexed body might be a better way of putting it. And then only in the Adam and Eve story where the Adama, the earth creature, has the rib or um, some rabbis would say the side taken away, the Adama split in two, then you have two bodies with two that are, that are then mapped male and female, right? Um, and some early Christians also saw, read the story that way, that, that it's only in the second creation story where you have a, two bodies. Before that, you have one body. So you're catching that, that there's two creation stories that are separate in Genesis. Yes, that, that's that what I'm saying. That people fuse to one story and say, this Absolutely. is the story and this is how it happened. But there seems to be two different accounts entirely. Oh, there's definitely two different yeah. accounts. I mean, separate. Well, all right. I shouldn't, say, I shouldn't be so definite. But in my view, <laughs> I think if you read Genesis 1 to 3 from beginning to end, it's pretty clear that you know Genesis 1 has the seven days and so on. And Genesis 2 to 3 has the Adam on the garden. So there's a different way in which human beings are created and animals are created in both stories. So they're what I think, interestingly enough, um, the ancient Israelites and then Jews did in their wisdom is they brought a bunch of stories that contradict one another together in the same sacred scripture. Mm-hmm. And actually, so did the early Christians when they pulled together the New Testament because there's contradictory statements in scripture. So if there's contradiction in scripture, then that's an invitation not to use the Bible as a rule book, but to use the Bible as an opportunity to open up conversation around what was at stake when different biblical authors might have said these different things. I, I appreciate that too, because one of the big things in the you know churches I grew up in and the people that don't like this podcast probably is say that uh, you know one of the big takeaways, you have to take the Bible literally. But if you actually are breaking it down and it doesn't, it doesn't say exactly what you think. Then, not that literally. Yeah, not, no, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, you know, then, yeah. Then I'll, Pick your literal. Which, what's literal and what right. isn't? Because no Christian ever keeps, you know, does everything literally. No one does that. It would be impossible because there's contradictions. You can't. But the, you have but the, to deal with allegorical the, or something. Yeah, but that's easy to escape. The next level up from that, which it held me yeah. for a really long time, is yes, but you have to be... Uh, literal and true in always to the author's intent. Oh, yes, yes. So can you get beyond that one? For instance, (sighs) do you see the Bible as a living document that, that you know, in some way? Or did do the original authors of each section as they meant it? Is that authoritative? Well, that's right. So the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy says that we believe the Bible to be, how's it go, holy, literal, and true in its autograph. But we have no autograph copies of a single biblical book, right? So therefore, we actually don't have access to the author's copy, and we never will. I don't, it's impossible, historically speaking. Um, 
we also don't always have the right information about authorship, you know, so authored by whom, in what sense, right? Who wrote Genesis? It wasn't, okay, so some people might argue Moses wrote it, but it, ah, I don't know. It doesn't make sense if you sit and read it carefully right. that Moses wrote the whole thing. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Um, so what would I say about that? If Paul, if you could talk to Paul and he says, yeah. I, got, uh, I got this from God, this is, you know, I got this from God, and I'm pretty sure, yep, this is what I mean. It doesn't matter if in 2020 or whatever, I don't care how far in the future you go, this is what I'm saying, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, and mm-hmm. I mean it this way about the headwear and the sexuality. This is what I mean right now. Is that final to you if you did have that, if you did know that for no, a fact? No, I Paul mean, I know, that? because it, so let's take, for example, the, um, the slavery stuff that Paul says. Mm-hmm. Let's say Paul comes back and says, um, yeah, slavery, you know, ultimately there won't be slaves, but for now it's okay. Slaves obey your masters and um, know that, you know, you're free in Christ, but, 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 we, but slavery's fine. Mm-hmm. Then I think actually that is a completely um, unethical position. <laughs> so I think I would say to Paul, no, actually, no, you don't get to, it is not okay to ask slaves to stay enslaved. Because that is an affront against the dignity of the human person. And in, you've argued, Paul, you know, that every human being is created by God. So I don't understand how you can be willing to st- take a step backwards from that position in order to defend slavery. Mm-hmm. So You'd take him to Paul, task if you could get a I'd hold of I'd take him to task. Yeah. And I think there has to be room in the reception of Scripture to be, for, to be able to take the Scripture to task. We can also be taken to task ourselves and we should be yes because we're also people who don't always know what the right is in a given situation but the biblical authors are also making decisions based on their own um contexts and that is clear from scripture i think yeah, I think so too. But then when you tell them you're going to take Paul to task, it makes it easier for them. See, those scholars, they think they just don't disagree with Paul or anybody. <laughs> you know, but I think that's a better way to look at it because it's I do think it's more like the the document is full of important information for us to continue to interpret. Is that's all yes. what it's always been. So can we not continue to interpret it? Don't act like there was a time when it wasn't interpreted, and now we do, or something, or vice versa. Exactly. It's not, That's and right. I, I don't feel that any of the biblical authors, regardless of what they thought they knew in the moment, that I don't feel that they were having some other type of experience than f- the feeling of real inspiration. I think all the things that maybe that John said, you know, whether it was figurative or literal, I don't know if that was necessarily clear to him in the moment. I don't think that matters. And there's mm-hmm. and it's still ca- captured something that it has this seemingly infinite amount of use to us in the realm of interpretation, yes. and Absolutely. that's what we're all doing that's, all the time. That's right. So I, if we could just start by agreeing that we're interpreting, mm-hmm. right. right? That there is no place to stand that is not interpreting. <laughs> right. That, that the Bible doesn't just say something and then we all just know it and receive it and that's it. That in fact we're interpreting whatever we think the Bible says. Yeah, and we're interpreting it through layers of traditions within which we operate and histories and, and our own loyalties to the people that we love and the people in our lives, right? And then the Bible is an opportunity and an invitation as opposed to something that we close and say, the Bible said at the end. Right. Mm-hmm. No. 
It, I guess right. the, I mean, when with you saying that, I've, I guess I've never actually read the real Bible. Is that is that true? <laughs> like I've only read an interpretation <laughs> or what other Bible. people put together. I, I think on another podcast I was listening to you with on, you said, and I I'm gonna butcher this, so I hope you can correct me. You said something like the verses that we read are are like from the six. 16th century or something like that. Like we're not even That's reading. True. What 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 did you mean by that? Because I, I was like, what? Have I never read the Bible? <laughs> no, I mean the, the Bible is a product of whatever now two thousand years of people transmitting it, right? And in part of that history of transmission is the chapters get introduced in the Middle Ages, and then the um, verses get introduced in the pre-modern period, you know, like, or like sort of almost at the modernity as we're entering modernity. So all of the Bibles with their chapters and verses that we use, those chapters and those divisions are not in what, for example, if Paul was reading Genesis, he would never have had that, right? Or if, you know, Augustine is reading um, the Gospel of John, he has a different set of chapters and, and divisions. There's no, there's no verses at all. So the way that we receive the Bible now is, is filled with you know, footnotes and chapters and verses yeah. and, and covers and, and um, all kinds of other stuff in addition to Scripture itself, right? And that's teaching us what the Bible is in ways that you know, 500 years ago, somebody was reading something completely different. Now, not, we're not even talking about the translations. We're not talking about, you know, the, the critical editing that went into the Greek text or the Hebrew text that are underlie the Bible, which there's a, that's always constantly changing. And then there's the translation on top of that. So, yeah, there is no Bible if we think about the way that individual Bibles are each a little bit different. Yeah, that mm-hmm. that is crazy. Is Paul? Y'all, you, y'all were both talking about Paul. Do you think Paul is the most influential voice, uh, and maybe even maybe even just with sexuality in our Americanized church? Do you think that that like it feels like he was he's pulled from the most when you when you're talking about sexuality? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, definitely. In the current in the current um, culture wars in the United States, certainly Paul will get. Pauline letters or letters attributed to Paul that he scholarly scholars might argue that some of those letters weren't written by Paul end up becoming the you know the weapons that get used um, or the rules that get invoked more than I mean I don't know how you're going to use laws about from Deuteronomy about how you're supposed to treat your second wife is probably not going to come up right (laughs) yeah yeah, I'm, it seems that Paul's attitude it, it gets utilized much more than Jesus's attitude. I'll put it that way. Like, yeah, they're both in the New Testament. We say Jesus' name more, but we take Paul's attitude like way more, like way over. I mean, I, Paul's way overrated, or Paul disagrees <laughs> with Jesus. I mean, you take your pick there, but it may be the case, right? Well, when he's giving instructions about, um, you know, marriage and sex, he he doesn't claim to be speaking from Jesus, with one exception. He, um, he's, you know, he says, I have this, I don't have this from the Lord, he'll say. But when he does forbid um, or say that the Lord forbids divorce, um, that's the only real teaching we have um, from Jesus about sex at all. And um, that teaching is actually must have forgot. differently. Yeah. Oh, sorry. What did I forget? I said he must have forgot. Jesus. He must have forgot. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't seem to have been that interested mm-hmm. in it, does so, he? So, I mean, an attitude is quite different <laughs> than Paul, just in, just in disposition. Yeah. yeah. Well, but we adopt it. only, we take one of their names and the other's disposition and then say, here oh, we go. Oh, that's interesting. You know? And then act as if it's all one thing. Right. 
which it's not. You, you say it came from Jesus, but it came from this other guy. I had a particular type of personality and attitude and way of doing things that I'm not saying is bad, but yeah, it's yeah. quite overrepresented in, in tone and attitude. Yeah. And some of and whatever is weaponizable from it, from that. So. Yes. It's funny. It's I funny agree. too because all this from a god who's not male or female, but is obsessed with our, our maleness yeah, or our right. femaleness. Apparently, yeah. uh-huh. something like that. I always thought that was strange. I know. I mean, don't you think God has better things to do than think about right. that? Like, there's a lot of really terrible things happening in the world about war and dispossession and poverty, and there's a lot more in the Bible about that stuff. So maybe. That would be worth thinking about too. Right. Anyway. Well, uh, w- w- one more thing I wanted to get here too. Like, so, uh, and like we were just talking about, one of the things uh, I know you've talked about and written about, you were talking earlier about contradictions uh, with, with mm-hmm. premarital sex. Cause once again, I've been thinking about how we've been talking about our oldest is 10, and we've been talking to her about how, you know, how couples are, the, the, how her mom and I are and what, you know, sex and, and stuff like that. Cause we, we want to do it in a healthy way, but what is the, it feels like the Bible is contradictory, for example, on maybe the subject of like premarital sex. Like it seems like, mm-hmm. uh, in some spots it says don't do it uh, or it's bad or, you know, you, you're supposed to have one wife or one husband and, you know, one is owns your body and the other one owns your body, but all that stuff. But then you read something like, and I might have misunderstood, but like Song of Solomon, are they married? Is that, is that, I mean, is there any clear indication there that like, I mean, and is that, isn't that like a porn in the Bible or something? Like, I mean, is <laughs> well, it sure, it certainly doesn't mind sex, right? I mean, the whole thing is a sort of titillating poem, actually. And in, um, I think it's even better in Hebrew than it is in English if you get the double entendres and so on. Um, I mean, it gets received as a, um, like a, a song at a wedding, but there's nothing in the book that tells you you have to read it that way. Yeah. And no, the couple doesn't seem to be married. No. Um, so yeah, the, the, I think because we're going to run out of time, what I, what I want to say is that the Bible doesn't have a, uh, the Bible. Okay. Let's, we're, t- we're talking about the Protestant Bible. Let's just be clear. Yeah. Okay. Because there's not one Bible. So the Bible in the same way that the Protest- Protestants have received it does not have a consistent message on this question of premarital sex. Um, and that ancient people and um, people, I mean, like ancient Israel and also ancient New Testament times don't have us the same kind of marriage law that we have in this country either. So there's a whole other question about property and who gets to marry and who doesn't. Okay, so let's just put all that aside for a second and think, is there anything useful for me as a Protestant Christian in Scripture about premarital sex? And I would actually say that it is the idea that our flesh matters deeply to God and that our flesh is honored and loved by God. So that's what I would want to say to my kids, is that your body matters, and your partner's body matters. So don't do anything that's going to cause any kind of hurt or concern or worry for either your body or your partner's body. That is where the discussion should begin. That's really good. It's kind of the opposite of where we started there, too, that, that if you start at, uh, well, you you're bi- you're bad. Your body's bad. Your flesh is bad. But if you can do enough work, maybe God will accept you and help you with how bad you are. And and you're saying it's a good place to start. That the message from the Bible seems to be very clear that your flesh is something that God cares about, and it's it is you. You're an Absolutely. embodied person. Yeah. 
and you yeah. part your body is part of you and i mean you, what the way you think i mean you know we know our minds are part of us and there's a, at least a strong biological component to our minds if not mm-hmm. entirely um and still that that's the thing that god cares about that's unextractable from our physical body so absolutely let's you know treat them treat them good god cares about them not hates them yes Thank you. Yes, preach it. <laughs> yeah. I've been numb to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll let you get out of here, Jennifer. I know you got a, a meeting coming up soon. But uh, so you can find Jennifer. It's Jennifer Canoost, but it's K N U S T. And we'd love to have you back on and talk a little bit more scripture and a little bit more uh, stuff in the future. If you if if you would ever come back, we we sure would appreciate because this has been enlightening. I, I've really valued this conversation a lot but you can find our books the latest one is called to cast the first stone and then uh unprotected text is one of the the good ones and popular ones i think too so uh check check out all those books and um anywhere else they can find you online or anything else coming up i know like you said you didn't really care to announce it but you're working on a version of the bible right now yeah, I'm one of the general editors for the New Revised Standard Version 30-Year Update. So that's been a really incredible experience to work with people from across different spectrums um, of what the Bible means um, in order to come up with a new translation. It's been really interesting. And is that a translation <laughs> that you already prefer or care or thinks number one? Or do, you, or do you think of them even in that way? I'm just curious how you think of the different translations, if you rank them or use them all or what? Well, really, you should read the Greek and the Hebrew, but Mm -hmm. if you can't do that, um, I mean, I tend to use the NRSV when I'm teaching. Often um, churches that I've been part of will use the NRSV. Um, It's a good translation. Every translation is an interpretation. So um, our goal um, as editors of the update is to try to bring the last 30 years of of study um, and textual knowledge to bear on this translation. We're not totally translating it over. We're just thinking through some things that might need to be tweaked in light of what we know 30 years out. That's cool. That's very, very cool. good. Thank you for all, all the work that you do um, and and your disposition as well. It's been really nice. Yeah. And we'll send people your way, and hopefully we have you back and go, you know, go deep on a very uh, a specific topic or something real specific. But this has been a nice uh, conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank awesome. you. Thank you, Jennifer. Is it such a bad idea being brave? Wearing our own skin to the fray If it's not worth risking everything I would say It wasn't worth having anyway Where the pine trees turn to palms I was wondering Could we belong In a big world
All right, the only way we can follow up a great interview is with some great music. You're listening to Come to California, a new single by Tyson Motzenbacher. I shouldn't say his name correctly. We've toured together, and I really like him. Tyson's awesome. Uh, his new record is called Someday I'll Make It All Up to You, and it comes out on Valentine's Day, February 14th. This is his second full-length album with Tooth & Nail. He'll be on tour throughout February and March with Colony House, so head over to his account for ticket info. Uh, and that show is going to be really fun, so get your tickets quick. Um, also, follow Tyson's pages on Spotify and Apple Music so you get alerts when more new music comes out. Someday I'll Make It All Up To You is out this Friday, February 14th, so go over and listen. Also, five songs are available right now, so go check those out today. Jennifer Canoost. Yeah, thank you, Toby. That was great. She's wonderful. Yeah, she really was. I mean, just I, I tell you, man, I just feel like sometimes when I talk to people that are just so intelligent and so nice and kind in the way that they uh, view the world and their work, it it just shocks me that I'm a Christian and know so little. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, I haven't really, I mean, I'm going to be 100% honest. I have not put in anywhere near the amount of work to figure out my God that I should for me identifying as a Christian, maybe even like, I mean, why not? I, maybe it's I'm bored with it or maybe I was just told so much that I, I mean, like it is extremely hard for me to read my Bible these days without all the years. I'm 43 years old without, you know, 35 years of Bible being, read to me or, or explained to me did from the you pulpit read it a lot at earlier times i well no i never have read it well i mean i read it out of obligation or fear i think i didn't i i mean that's what i'm saying like talking to jennifer is really neat because uh out of her all of her life experiences the enjoyment of searching for god was not squashed right like i mean she mm-hmm. in, in her work she gets to be uh critical and thoughtful and uh you know it 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 is very uh, high-level work. It takes a lot of intelligence to figure out the things that everybody, in, you know, afterlife or what the Bible says or what our God says to us. She's, she's taking her time and using her life to experience that stuff. And there isn't an agenda outside of just the truth. She's not, she, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, she's not trying mm-hmm. to uh, throw out all the premarital sex stuff because, uh, you know, she— she wants everybody she's to have premarital sex. Or, she, yeah, right. She, yeah, she's right, yeah. wanting to know what the Bible says. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, that, but that's we, just so valuable. We have a problem with reducing people to, if you don't want to agree with somebody, the easiest thing for you to do is reduce them to a one-dimensional agenda. Oh, right. And if you can get them, you can disagree with their points, but that's not near as effective as claiming that they have an agenda. Yeah. Because then you don't have to actually contend with their points. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's uh, once you could say, oh, but her thing is like those abortion doctors. They just they mu- they love abortions. Like that can't really be true, and you know that. I mean, you know that all the Democrats' main goal isn't the destruction of America. Yeah, you know that that's not their goal, right? Right. I mean, you could think that. You could even make the right. argument that their actions may cause it, and you could even say some. There's probably some 
real communist moles in there that really want to take down America. Whatever. But it is not reasonable to say, usually, that your opponent is trying to do the exact op- – the person you disagree with intellectually yeah. is trying to do the exact opposite of what is good and right in the world. Yeah. To you, I mean, that's almost never true. And so – Well, it's, it's, think, it's helping know, me really, see – like, I've been noticing this lately, and, th- and she just brought this to the forefront of my mind today. Notice how many people talk about the Bible in just verse a verse – God says this, this, and this, right? And they, you know, they usually preface it with God says, uh-huh. so then you can't right. argue with it, or you know, that, because then you, you know, I, once again, I'm lazy and don't know enough to say, well, this is what was happening or whatever. But uh, imagine, so Jennifer is looking at the entire Bible so much so that she's working on the entire Bible right now as part of her career and her job. And uh, but you see the, and I see this on like TikTok or social media, Facebook, all that stuff. Some will go, here's a verse, and then. They imply that it is exactly what it means is exactly what they are saying, and it, it agrees with them, right? So, it, are you going to? Mm-hmm. People will take the entire Bible and diminish it completely to one verse, and it always seems to agree with what they think. Isn't that crazy? Like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. the, the, you're you're taking one verse and that represents the entire Bible, the entire Word of God, and this verse is exactly truth. And it just so happens that I'm using this verse, and, and I agree with it completely, and it's what I'm trying to talk to you about. So if you know yeah. what I mean, like I don't, so I don't like premarital. It's disrespectful on yeah. the highest level. But I mean, uh, somebody goes, it, I don't know. like premarital sex. Here's the scripture for it, as if. But I mean, then you skip over all kinds of other verses and you totally diminish the power of the Bible. You can say I don't agree with pre- premarital sex or sex outside of marriage, right? But then you uh, go over to like uh, what is it, like the Book of Judah or something? Where uh, uh, is it Judah that goes to the prostitute? Or, or it's, well, you know, know, or that's what I'm saying, like, or uh, polygamy. It, it, I mean, mm-hmm. like, you cannot make it, the Bible so black and white and dead. You just well, cannot you can, make it. But that. it's going to hurt you in the end. And that's what it's doing. You, it's running everybody but, away from faith, I think, or Christianity, at yeah. least. Maybe religion. Yeah, for sure. A better it word. It's causing a lot of people to do the opposite of your intended goal. Uh, but you may be confused about that. I think your intended goal is to get everybody saved and have everybody agree with you. I think the goal is mainly to get everybody to be just like me. That way I'll know I'm okay. Right. It, that's probably the deepest drive that people have is, you know, just know that there's bad guys and good guys, and I'm a good guy, and the more people like me, good right. or whatever. But 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 what would what's the problem is is taking that approach that you're saying is working less and less and causing more and more damage, especially right. as people understand what narrative control and fake news is and what you can do with rhetoric. I mean, right. this has been a real big problem. I mean, this rhetoric game that everybody plays today has always been happening in this sphere, and now it's out. And so now that you see all this rhetoric being used by all these different groups and activists, you now recognize it more so that you've been living inside of something like that for your whole life. Right. So when you see the this movement weaponizing that speech and doing bullshit tactics, that's the same thing when somebody comes up to you, has a slam dunk verse, there you go, I said it, I'm the hero, I'm out of here. You know, that that same behavior is we see it widely now, and so it makes us really look and be able to see effectively that. And those people are going to be in worse and worse shape that behave that way because people are now becoming wise to it. So it's just right. going to make them farther and farther away from being effective people, you know. It, and then I don't know what the results will be, but it seems to be that's the case. <laughs> you know, you could feel, aren't we more comfortable understanding how others I- intend to manipulate us now than we were all right. 15 years ago? 
like, yeah. much. Like the human skill level at recognizing bullshit has gone through the fucking roof, man. So right, bullshitters are running for their lives everywhere. But also, people have figured out that there's amazing things you can do with bullshitting everywhere. So we're in some kind of right. crazy race right now. <laughs> You're right. Like that, we, we, this is a great opportunity in the history of the world, and it, also it ev- exactly everybody's taking on. advantage of it. So you got to watch out. Yeah. So you're recognizing at higher rates that people are getting better at it than they've ever been before with big right. data and tech and branding yeah. and marketing and all these. I mean, those are all things to try to do bad things to you. And you're got you've gotten better at recognizing yeah. it, but some people hadn't got as good. And you're not good enough yet. And then the AI is probably going to be better than you. And now right. who's going to be control what? And so if we're in that narrative rhetoric recognition phase where everybody's yeah. coming online with that at the moment. All right. Well, I got a, a question, Matt. And uh, so maybe we can talk about this on one of our Daily Dose episodes. Our Daily Dose episodes are the episodes we do for the BC Clubbers. If you're not in the BC Club, just join. Uh, we do an episode Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and it's... Uh, a great, great environment. Uh, one of the big things that Matt and I have been talking about, why is it so important to us, is uh, it we are trying to cultivate a way of uh, being able to make low-risk mistakes. Like, say something... Low-stakes mistakes. Do what? Make it rhyme. You say low-stakes mistakes. Low-stakes mistakes. Um, and so... Low-stakes makes mistakes all you low want. Stakes That's how learning mistakes. works. And That's so, what you want and, we're, and the club isn't isn't perfect at it. I'm not perfect. Nobody is. But we want to create an environment where you can say something, and then maybe you can talk, and maybe there is some conflict, but it's not uh, mean-spirited. It's, it's, maybe it's even in the pursuit of truth. So uh, one of the things that I want to do an episode on, because you just mentioned AI, is as... Artificial intelligence uh, gets better and better and better, or maybe even just computer technology gets better and better and better. Eventually, maybe computers will know, will they be able to know everything so much so that they'll be able to tell us what happened in the past and maybe even explain what, is that possible? Like, we'll be able to know everything? Like, Will a computer be able to know everything and be able to put it all together to say, oh, this is actually what happened with the story of Jesus? Is that possible? Don't answer. I mean, Don't answer. Okay. This is for the BC club. And everybody and everybody's like, oh man, I, I got everybody's listening going, I got to answer, stupid old Toby. But I'm not stupid. But if you want to say I'm stupid, you can get in the BC club and then you get to say it all you want. Just like <laughs> these folks. Louis Echeverria, and I've said his name before, and I'm probably messing it up again. Ed Leto, Jacob Abernathy, Matthew Samuel Wilson, Max Mullet, Gina Sidler, or Sidler, Jeremy Hinion, Hinion. Robbie Green, Jeff Lucht, and Mark Siebert or Sebert. Uh, those folks are in there, and they get to say how stupid of an idiot or uh, how cool I am, which is what normally happens. Uh, and if you haven't been able to join the BC Club yet, what are you waiting for? It's 2020. Where, where are <laughs> you at? Right. Good Lord. I, that's the better way to sell this thing. Of course, you get the podcast every day if you like it. But right now, if you just listen to the Wednesday episode, you have to think Toby and I are bad and stupid by yourself. Right. And you, you can't prove it. And you, you and above all, you don't have any opportunity to actually hurt our feelings because we right. can't hear you. But if you join the BC Club, then all those comments you have about me, you can actually hurt my feelings with them. Right. You'll yeah. be able to do that. Can, can, I take it join. One, can I take it one further? If you're a Christian out there and thinking we're a danger to Christianity, don't you think you should join the club and win all those souls back? 
Right. What do you? Why would you not join the club to win them all back from our evil hands and mouths? We're talking. Yeah. We're whispering Satan's uh, words into all these beasts. Get join the club so you can win them back for Christ. Yes, you, right that now is, it's the it's the way the, to Jesus do things. Wants you to and, do. And, and cool Christians know that because if you ever tell them that their church is fucked up, they say, "Yeah, but I'm trying to save it from the inside, right? From the inside." So just come do that with us. Yeah. We're super fucked up. Yeah, you don't care about these folks? Work on it from the inside, then. (laughs) This is a killer missionary field, you sons of bitches. All right. Well, that's all I'm going to say. If you don't join it, then you don't believe in God. Or at the very least, you are against God, is what I would say. At the very least. (laughs) Yeah. Join it! Peace.